Thank you, worship team. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you have one, go with me to the book of Exodus chapter 20. The book of Exodus chapter 20. We began a series focusing on the Ten Commandments. And the subtitle of the Ten Commandments is how free people live. How free people live. If you're new to our church, I want to welcome you. Uh, My name is Rich. I'm the lead pastor here. And at the end of the service, I'll be downstairs in the lobby area. I would love to meet you. Uh, and um, get your name and all that. I want to welcome those watching online as well. Last week we began at the first commandment, uh, which was have no other gods before me. Today we're going to talk about uh, the second commandment, which is make no graven images. I hope many of us have memorized it by now with our fingers, the Ten Commandments there. Uh, It'll be a test at some point. Uh, And so keep on studying hard to get those commandments memorized by heart. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse number uh, 4 through verse 6, hear the word of the Lord. It says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or, or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Punishing the children for the sin of parents of the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. But showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Lord, open our hearts, Lord, to this word and give us revelation as uh, what this word means in our own lives today here in 2019 in Queens, New York City. Speak Holy Spirit. Open our ears. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. I want to begin our time with a little bit of uh, show and tell. I'm going to get very deep very quickly here in terms of how we understand spiritual truth. And so does anyone know what what this thing is right here? Um, uh, Mr. Potato Head. Mr. Potato Head came out before Toy Story, by the way, and um, for those of you who are like, oh yeah, from Toy Story. Mr. Potato Head was the first toy in 1952 to be advertised on television, the first toy to be advertised on television. I found out this past week that originally it was sold as separate parts uh, that you would, uh, they would put in a, a, a container and then you would have to have push pins to put in actual potatoes. Uh, but uh, that didn't work. And so uh, after a while, the rotting potatoes and all that just caused some issues. And so in 1962, Hasbro decided to create a plastic potato with all the accessories and all that to make Mr. Potato Head. And children love Mr. Potato Head for many reasons. Number one, Mr. Potato Head is customizable. You can do whatever you want with Mr. Potato Head. If you don't like something you just take it off. If you want to manipulate something, you can take an ear off. If you don't like the arm, you take the arm off. If you want to put the arm where the ear is or the ear where the arm is, you just do whatever you want. Mr. Potato Head is customizable. Mr. Potato Head can be easily manipulated. And if you don't like something, you just do away with it. Now, kids love Mr. Potato Head. And this is a fun thing to do, but Although it might be fun with kids and toys, this is a dangerous thing to do with God. A very dangerous thing to do with God. And yet for throughout human history, 
Many have treated God like Mr. Potato Head. If there are certain things we don't like about God, we just remove those parts. If we want to adjust God according to how we see fit, we manipulate God or our perspective of God however we want. In short, we've treated God like Mr. Potato Head. As a famous saying goes, we, God created us in his image, and ever since, we've been trying to return the favor. <laughs> God made us in his image, and ever since, we decided to return the favor. Our text today focuses on idol making. And before you say that's something that happened a long time ago, or for other people in different parts of the world, I want to show you that this is something that all of us wrestle with. All of us, no matter who you are, no matter how sophisticated you are, how intelligent you are, how educated you are, no matter who you are in this room, watching online, we've all done this second commandment. We've all have created an idol. Actually, in the book of Ezekiel in 14, it says, beyond just the idols that we form, we all have idols of our hearts. And God has a word for us as we look to the second commandment. Now, before we get into this text and before we focus particularly on this idol, uh, this, this, this commandment per, per se, I want to revisit some important context because if we don't get this right, we're going to get the rest of it wrong. Now, as I mentioned last week, the Ten Commandments were not given to free the people of God. The Ten Commandments were given to show what free people look like. When the people of God were in Egypt for 400 years in slavery, God didn't give them the Ten Commandments while they were still in Egypt and said, do all these things. And when you get all these things right, then you will be set free from the hand of Pharaoh. Not at all. What happens is God in God's mercy, God in God's power, God in God's love comes and delivers the people of God from slavery, delivers the people of God from bondage, delivers the people of God from their oppression. And after they get delivered, God gives them these commands. And when God gives these commands, God doesn't give these arbitrary laws that he just takes out of nowhere. He, he gives these commands as kind of tools of resistance. Because God knew that you could be separated and out of Egypt, but still have Egypt deeply living in you. And so God was more concerned about not just having his people set free, but live free. And it's true to our experience that you can be set free but not live free. The truth can be out there that Jesus Christ loves you, that God has rescued you, that God has forgiven you. You can be set free but not live free. That's not your experience. That's not your day-to-day -day reality. And God knows you can be set free but not live free. And so the commandments were given to show this is what free people look like. In an age where they were surrounded by other kinds of belief systems, other kinds of behaviors, God in the book of Exodus here in the Ten Commandments shows them this is what free people look like. And so the first and second command actually go together uh, pretty nicely. But there is a distinction. If the first commandment was about who to worship, the second commandment is about how to worship. The first is who to worship, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment is about how to worship, and the two need to be held together. And so our text, again, important words. You shall not make for yourself an idol 
whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath, that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Before we go into this, God says, don't make any idols for one particular reason, and that reason is, I am a jealous God. I am a jealous God. Now, a quick word about this word, jealous, and jealousy. In our day, jealousy means to have a feeling of resentment against someone because of their success, because of their achievements, because of their possessions. We are jealous of other people in the homes that they have. We're jealous of other people in the cars that they drive. We're jealous of other people in the salary that they make. We're jealous of other people of, of who they are with. We, we are jealous people from time to time. But this is not what jealousy means here in this context. The word jealous here in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for it is the word kana. And the word kana really speaks to the word zealous. It's, 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 it's zealous. The word, one Hebrew uh, scholar said, it comes from two words, which uh, gives the, the metaphor of a bird watching over its nest, a bird protecting its nest, zealously, an eager desire, a passion to protect her little ones, to protect, and this is what the word kana uh, speaks of. And so it's a bird protecting its nest, from intruders who would do her young harm. And this makes sense now why God would be jealous, why God would be kana, why God would have a zealous, because God is trying to protect us from the dangers of the intrusions of idols. God knows the danger that this does to our hearts. God knows the danger that it does to our minds. And so God, the word is jealous. God has an all-consuming passion to protect his people from the self-destructive behaviors that tend to dominate our lives. Kana. God is zealous. And the reason God is zealous is because God knows that our sin, our idol-making, is not just something that impacts us, God knows that it impacts other people around us, that it impacts generation to generation, which is why this is one of the more painful verses in the Old Testament. It says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. Two things about this one verse. Some people might say, how can this be fair that I get punished for what somebody else has done? My children ask that all the time. You know, just like, he did it. Why am I getting put at? You were, you were an accomplice in all this here. Uh, but what we see in this is that, number one, sin is social. We think sin is just an individual problem. Sin is social. There are social, familial ramifications of our sin. And it goes from one generation to the next. Now, Monfred Brock, an Old Testament scholar, has said that this word uh, where it says punishing children should be rendered in Hebrew that children tend to experience the consequences of the sins of their parents. And we know this to be true, don't we? This is why we talk about genograms at New Life, where we look at our family history. 
and see the struggles of our grandparents, the struggles of our parents, the ways that we struggle and the ways that we hand down things from one generation to the next. God knows that sin is not just an individual thing. Sin is a social thing. And, and so one of the reasons that we, are, we need to be examining our families is because sin is a social reality. But then look at grace in this passage. It says, from one generation to the next, we can hand down some stuff. But this is the grace of God. But God shows steadfast love to the thousandth generation. Look at the comparison. Three to four generations here, but then showing compassion, steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so listen, our sin might trap us for a moment, but God's mercy is forever. Amen. Our our sin, the grace of God always outweighs judgment. And so God shows us this passage here, and then he goes right into the particularities of idol making. Now, everyone in the ancient world believed in many gods, and they had a kind of pantheon of gods, and you had different gods for different issues, different gods for different needs, different gods for different situations. And so in our time, every god was was restricted to a particular, every god had its specialty, And so you needed to grow some crops, you needed a sun god. You were heading out to battle, you needed a war god. And every god had their specific department. Every god had their specific aisle that they could not go out of. That's their aisle. If you went to the supermarket in ancient times, you go, where's the sun god? Oh, that's aisle seven. Where's the moon god? Aisle eight. Where's the war god? Oh, that's aisle 14. Every god had a particular domain a particular area that they could not step out of. But what begins to happen is this God was, this this idol was a means to help make this God accessible, to make this God knowable. This idol of a sun God helped to make the sun accessible. This idol of a war God helped to make this this war God accessible. No, but what, what, what began to happen is the actual form of a thing began in their mind to replace the actual reality of it. So much so that the form of it became the object of its worship. And so what happens is idol making reduced the deity to an object that they can easily control and manipulate. Put away whenever they want. Put in their pocket and take out when they need this God. It reduced God to a silent, controllable, unmoving object of our control. And this is why Yahweh, this is why God prohibits not just general idol making, but God prohibits anyone making an idol of Yahweh because God cannot be tamed. God cannot be manipulated. God cannot be controlled. This is why in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 4, the second time the Ten Commandments are given is in chapter 5. In Deuteronomy 4, God reminds his people how he revealed himself to them. And he, he lets them know from the beginning. He uses language to let them know, you can't control me. You can't manipulate me. You, you cannot reduce me. And so in Deuteronomy 4, it says, you came near, talking about the people of God, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire 
to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you follow, and then wrote them on two stone tablets. You saw no form, verse 15, of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Now, in Deuteronomy, God is depicted as fire here. And so, in short, what we see in Deuteronomy is that God has no form but only a voice. God speaks out. He, he speaks cl with clarity, speaks with power. No form, but only a voice. Idolatry does the very opposite of this, where it says there is no voice, God has no voice, but only a form. Is the direct opposite. God as fire is no form, only a voice. Idolatry seeks to mute God and give God a form. And God will have nothing of it. And what God is saying is, I refuse to be controlled. Now, moreover, God is saying, you can't reduce me to certain areas. The idols are reduced to particular departments. The idols are reduced to particular spheres. The idols are reduced to particular areas. But you can't control me. I am the living God. I am formless. I speak. You cannot manipulate me. You cannot control me. God is saying, there is no place where I am not. There is no place where I cannot go. There is nothing that can, there, there's no place that is not already mine. In the New Testament, Jesus picks up on this. Where a religious leader by the name of Nicodemus comes up to him at night. And he wants to know what God is like. And, and Jesus says, the, 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 the God is like, this, like the wind. The spirit of God is like wind. You don't know where it's coming from and you don't know where it's going. The wind, here it is, blows wherever it pleases. God is fire. God is wind. God refuses to be controlled. There's never a moment throughout human history where God has not been blowing, where God has not been moving. God is speaking Throughout every age, you cannot control the living God. The Spirit of God is sovereign, refuses to be controlled by us, refuses to be tamed by us, refuses to be confined by us. God is this active, living, moving presence in our world. No form, all voice. Now, the issue here with idolatry was, or one of the issues was, God said, don't do this because you are now making the object the God. You're making, the object now becomes the God. And while I'm on this topic here, I, I think it's an important word to bring some nuance because throughout church history, there have been Christians that have used particular items throughout worship. And whether it's icons and, and so I want to just offer a quick word. I can't speak to all of it, but, but a quick word about things like icons, things like paintings. An icon is not an idol because of how you use it. An icon properly used, it, it means it's a window into another reality. 
It helps you contemplate the invisible God by something that you can see. And so now that can very easily become the object of worship. But icons are a window into another reality. And so I'll give you an example. This, uh, this cross has been here a long time. Someone made this cross. Someone cut the wood. Someone put it together. And if you stood before the cross like many of us do on Ash Wednesday, as many of us do on Good Friday, and you sit before the cross or kneel before the cross and contemplate the cross and meditate on the cross, the cross, when used properly, becomes an icon, a window into another dimension of reality where we look at the cross and think about the, the poured out blood of Jesus Christ. Now, if we looked at the cross and think this cross within itself is the God, then we're in trouble. If we believe that this cross or, or having a cross in your car is going to save you. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> Let me keep going there. I feel the spirit moving now. <laughs> if you think you put any kind of item there and it's going to protect your house and protect your car and all that there, and it's now taking the place of God in your life because you're putting your trust in something like that there, now we're in dangerous territory. But if, but if, it's, a, if it's an item that's used to help me usher me into a greater awareness of the presence of God, the God who cannot be tamed, the God who cannot be seen, the invisible God who is spirit. Now we're talking. Now I need to mention this because for far too long, many of our Catholic brothers and sisters, many of our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters have been wrongly accused of idolatry. Now, of course, there's some of our Catholic brothers and sisters and some of our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters who have used these items as means of worship. But I want to also say that this is not just particular to our Catholic brothers and sisters and our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters. This is something that's found within our own Protestant, evangelical, Pentecostal, charismatic tradition. We might not worship a golden calf, but we, we worship some other animals from time to time. <laughs> We, we might not fashion a golden calf, but we bow at the altar of the elephants, and we worship at the altar of the donkey, and we are reminded, brothers and sisters, that we don't bow to the elephant, we don't bow to the donkey, we bow to the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. Amen. I'm trying. I'm trying, William. I'm trying to preach this thing today, William. And so idolatry is not just something that ex that's exclusive to religious context. Idolatry is found anywhere we put our trust. Anywhere we put our ultimate hope in something besides God. In many respects, there's idols of our world and there are idols of our hearts. Now, the problem of the second commandment it's not just that we worship this instead of God. The other deep problem is that we reduce God to our own image, to our own understanding. We 
We reduce God to fit our own values. We reduce God to fit our own concerns. We reduce God to fit our own perspectives. We reduce God to fit our own particular voting sensibilities. We see this often. We limit God to areas that we are particularly concerned about. And consequently, God is only concerned about the things I'm concerned about. And so this is how this plays out. Some of us in our world have created a God who believe, who we believe, cares about the unborn but doesn't care about the immigrant. Or cares about the refugee but doesn't care about the unborn. We, we create a God who believe, we believe cares about the poor but could care less about our sexual practices. Cares about our health but not our environment. Cares about the people we love but doesn't really care about the people we hate. Anne Lamont said it this way, you can safely assume you've created a God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. (laughs) And so if the first commandment invites us to ask, what other gods are we expecting to save us? The second commandment invites us to ask, do we impose on God things that God doesn't impose on himself? Do we try to silence God in any way? Are there areas in our world, are there areas in our own lives where God cannot speak? Where we say, God, you can speak to this, but you can't speak to that. You can have this, but you can't have that. Have we compartmentalized God in a way that's God now is controllable, easily manipulated, God simply becomes a cosmic Mr. Potato Head. If we don't like that, we remove it. If we like it, we keep it. Now, there are some underlining ideological and theological belief systems that have us think along these lines. And I want to just talk about three of them here. We often, why do we make idols of our own hearts? Why do we reduce God? Why, why do we do this second commandment? Well, I think there's at least three reasons. The first is, we often believe that God is too big to care about certain things. Ironically, we, we, distant, we make God so big that God doesn't care about anything down here. In a word, we distance God. God is way up here and has no concern for anything down here. We see this in our own brokenness, where we say God is too big to care about my own life, the the details about my life, and yet we see a God who is king of the universe and knows every hair on your head. And so we often distance God. God is way out here, too big to notice, too big to care, too disinterested in us. Too disinterested in our lives, God is distanced. The second movement of our own hearts, theologically, ideologically, is that we believe that God is too small, too weak, too powerless. In short, we domesticate God. We often believe God is too small to deal with 
my sin and brokenness. Too small to deal with the realities of our world. Too small. You say, if you know what I've done, surely I could not be forgiven for that. And we have now domesticated God. If you know what that person's done, you know that person cannot be forgiven. We've domesticated God. And so in one sense, we distance God. In another sense, we domesticate God. In a third sense, we diminish God. We diminish what God can speak to in our world. Now, in Psalm 115, it's, it's an interesting study to talk about idols because in Psalm 115, it says that idols have mouths, but they cannot speak, have ears, but they cannot hear, have eyes, but they cannot see. They have been rendered mute. And one of the great dangers of Christianity is our attempt at trying to mute the living God by compartmentalizing what God can speak to and what God cannot speak to. And so to make ourselves for an idol is to limit the scope of God's voice in our lives. Limit the scope of God's voice in our world. From time to time, I hear people say to me, Rich, can you just preach the gospel? And that's code for just talk about what happens when we die. And when we think about the gospel in that narrow sense here, we are, domest- we are diminishing. We are making a gospel in our own image. We are making God in our own image. This is why at New Life, I like to say from time to time, we should have a sign in front of our building that says, enter at your own risk. <laughs> because we are inviting you to go places, inviting you to think particular ways, Inviting you to see the God who Jesus Christ reveals that is uncontrollable, untamable, impossible to manipulate. Enter at your own risk. God does have something to say to everything. God is not just over the religious department of our world. God has a word for everything. God can speak to everything. God does have something to say to people who would view the unborn as non-human people. God does have something to say to people who think racism has nothing to do with the gospel. God does have something to say to people who live flippantly as it pertains to their sexuality. God does have something to say to people who don't think justice is, is part of God's heart. And anytime we try to limit God, we are in danger of creating an idol. And God cannot be limited by us. God can't be limited to one church. God can't be limited to one color of people. God can't be limited to one political party. God can't be limited to one cause. God can't be limited to one nation. God can't be limited. He's the uncontrollable, untamable God who is like fire, who's like wind, who blows wherever he wants and can speak to whatever he wants. God is way too big for that. And so here's a question. Do we impose on God something God doesn't impose on himself? Do we limit what God can speak to in our lives? Do we try to silence God in any way? Have you said to God about your own life, you you can speak to that 
but you can't speak to this. Now, what's fascinating is I want to close with a surprising movement in the scriptures. When you look at the narrative arc of scripture, the way that the scriptures unfold as a story, we see that there's there's a surprising way that God reveals God's self. In Deuteronomy 4, it says that God is no form, but only a voice, fire. Idolatry is about God having no voice, but only a form being reduced. But something happened 2,000 years ago. A surprising revelation of God. A surprising move of God, which actually confounds the sensibilities of the world. Where God takes it one step further, and in the person of Jesus Christ, actually becomes all form and all voice. All form, all voice. This is the surprise of Christianity. That the God who is not a form, who's fire, becomes a human being. Colossians 2 verse 9 says it like this. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. In John 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, the one who speaks, the one with a voice. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This word who speaks becomes a form. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us. God in Jesus Christ is all form, all voice. Listen, idols can't hear, but Jesus can hear. Idols can't see, but Jesus can see. Idols can't save, but Jesus can save. And when he shows us, when he reveals to God, idols restrict God, idols reduce God, Jesus Christ fully and finally reveals who God is. And when he reveals who this God is, he reveals God in infinite mercy, reveals God in infinite compassion, reveals God in infinite love, reveals God in infinite power. But it's a a surprising power, a power that's made whole in weakness, a power that would die for the sins of the world that it would absorb the sins on his own form, on his own body, absorb the the horrors of our world. Every sin known to mankind, Jesus Christ absorbs in his body, takes it on his flesh, on his form, speaks out with a voice, it is finished. And the one who becomes flesh, the voice who becomes flesh is the one who can rescue us. All form, all voice. The question is, what area of your life have you said, God, you can't touch this? You can't. Again, idols are compartmentalized. How have you compartmentalized the living God? You can touch this, but you can't touch that. And often we do it because of great fear. What if God touches this? What if God now addresses my sexuality? What if God addresses my money? What if God addresses now my parenting, my, my, my dreams, my desires, my hope? What then? And we're reminded of what this passage says, that God shows steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love him and keep his commandments. Well, you say, well, 
I can't keep all the commandments. I mess up from time to time. This is why I thank God for Jesus who lives these commandments perfectly, dies as our substitute, raised into newness of life. And when we put our hope in this God, we are truly set free. All form, all voice, amen. Let's pray together. Let me invite you to close your eyes for a moment. God in God's love wants to address every aspect of our lives. There's no area that God doesn't say, that's mine. But when God names areas in our lives, he names them to set us free. He names them not to heap shame on us, not to keep us wallowing in our guilt. He he names them to set us free. And I wonder today, where have you said to God, this is off limits? Where have you reduced God? Or maybe you've had an image of God in your mind, maybe created by your image of your parents, which might have been a negative image. Someone maybe gave you an image of who God is, that's not revealed through Jesus Christ. Today, we say, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, may Jesus be revealed in our hearts. You've showed us who you are in the pages of Scripture. Compassionate, merciful, broken and poured out for us on the cross. Lord, we read it. Now, would we experience that? Some of you, you need a fresh revelation of who this God is. The God of infinite mercy, infinite love. And so, Lord Jesus, forgive us of all the ways that we fashion idols, that we reduce you, that we put our object, of, our, our trust in an object outside of you. Lord, you are the great God who touches every aspect of human existence whose love never fails. We sing to you now words of praise and worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, let's all stand, let's sing together.
Let's have our prayer team come up to my left. Invite those who are going to offer the bread and the cup to come to my right. When we take the bread and we dip it in the cup, the bread and the cup becomes to us an icon, a window into another reality. We're more than just a wafer. When taken in faith, we begin to find ourselves in a kind of loving union with the Lord who has been broken and poured out for us. More than some kind of religious duty here, when we come to the table, we open ourselves up to a kind of mystical encounter with the living God. And so when you take the bread, you're saying, Jesus Christ broken, poured out for us, for the sins of the world. And when we, that, that wafer, that, that, that cup there becomes a reminder of what God is like. There's one person who said the most important thing about our lives is what we think God is like. And we don't have to do much thinking. Jesus Christ has already shown us. This is what God is like. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know how merciful God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know how loving God is like? Look at Jesus. Broken, poured out for you. There's no sin too great that Jesus Christ cannot cover through his blood. And so when you take the bread and dip it in the cup, we are participating in union with God. And to my left, we have our prayer team here. I imagine all of us in one way or another, we've said, God, you can have this area, but you can't have this. And we've done it because of anxiety, fear, and prayer is an opportunity to open ourselves up very courageously and say, Lord, I'm prone to close this area of my life, but through your spirit, would you begin to open me up? Because your desire for me is freedom. Your desire for me is liberation, salvation. And so whether you come for whatever needs you have, maybe you've been reducing God. The God that you've been in relationship with has been a figment of your own imagination. And today you are sensing the Lord begin to shatter the idols of your heart. Some of you, you're not even a Christian. You came to church. Maybe you've been checking this experience out, checking out this gathering. And I want to let you know that whatever God you might have believed in pales in comparison to the God revealed through Jesus Christ. There is no one more compassionate than Jesus. There's no one more loving than Jesus. There's no God you can find who will rescue you like Jesus. And today's an opportunity for you to come to this God, to place your hope in him, your trust in him. And our prayer team for whatever needs you have would love to pray for you. And as we close, I want to invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. If you're watching online, Feel free to open your hands in this posture as well. If you're new to our church, we end every gathering with this posture of receiving. The world's posture is one of grasping and manipulation. The follower of Jesus is open, open to the love of God. And so with your hands and your hearts in the posture of receiving, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. 
And may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness to the God revealed in Jesus Christ. And may your life be broken and poured out for the sake of the world. And may God use you in great ways to reveal who this Jesus is. And so I bless you all today in the strong, in the beautiful, in the saving name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. amen. Grace and peace to you all.